Well, we say this almost every Sunday, but if you have your Bible with you and you want to take it out, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones there in the seat rack, hopefully nearby you. It may say NIV on the end, but if you want to take it out to the book of Hebrews. Last Sunday, we started this 13-week uh, look at Hebrews. <clears throat> it's in the last 50 or 60 pages of the Bible, so it's near the back. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Now, if you're using one of the black Bibles in the seat rack there, it's page 838, if you just want to turn to it. Um, and again, we're going to be looking at that. Now, if you look up here at the banners, you see that the name of this series is The Supremacy of Jesus, a study in, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, <clears throat> what I want you to remember that Steve said last week is who was the original audience for this letter. And uh, it was, uh, if you're following along, oh, I don't know if I'm asking a multitask here, it's written to assure Christians who are discouraged and afraid. It's written to assure Christians who are discouraged and afraid. In fact, as Steve said last week, it's, it's people that came from a Jewish ethnicity, a Jewish heritage and background. And uh, for them to say, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, created all kinds of havoc in their life, relationally, business-wise, and it, it brought them into difficulty. So Hebrews is being written as an encouragement uh, to bolster them, to, to say, don't, don't quit. I know you're, you're tempted to be discouraged and afraid and want to quit and compromise. I mean, again, isn't this the constant temptation for us to say, you know, like, you don't need to go overboard on Jesus. I mean, he's good. But you don't have to, like, you know, give them your whole life. I mean, that's, like, for crazy people. And what happened is, is that, as we're understanding from this series, if Jesus is supreme, that he deserves our whole life, every area of our life. So we're looking at that today. And uh, the supremacy, what does that mean? If you're following along in the notes, supremacy means to have first place in everything. If somebody has supremacy, that means they're top, they're first, they're most influential, they're over everything. So it means to be first, first place in everything. Some of you may remember when we studied the letter to Colossians years ago, we came across these two verses. I absolutely love them. Tell us about Jesus. Look at what it says here on the screen. He is before all things, Jesus is, and in him all things hold together. It just shows just his massive power. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Remember, he rose from the dead. Let's read this last phrase together. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. <clears throat> so that's why we talk about Jesus' greatness. We're not just kind of go, wow, he's great. That's good. No, he is great so that he can be great in every area of our life. He wants to have the supremacy of our lives. And of course, that's where a lot of us wrestle. So today, we want to talk about what it means that Jesus became a human being. I don't know about you, but if you're seeking to show that you're supreme, that would be like a step in the wrong direction, in my opinion, is to head down towards us rather than prove it some other way. The Bible wants us to know that not only is this a great encouragement to us when we understand this, but also it shows that Jesus is supreme in every way, including in becoming human. So I want to talk to you about that, but I want to make sure that you know that this is messy. Um, this always raises a lot of questions. Other religions deny this, don't agree with this, protest this. Islam teaches that there is no way that 
Jesus could have become God. They admit he's a prophet. They admit that some of his teachings were helpful. But there's no way that he was God in a human body because that just is a contradiction. That would be, there's no way that God can change. There's no way that God can live in time and space, be limited like that. There's no way that God uh, can be, you know, the body would, would be something that would limit God. So there's, there's a lot of mystery here. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that there's no way that Jesus could have become a human being because that means that God died on the cross. So did God die? Now that's a misunderstanding of death in its full sense. Death is not just physical existence. There's more to us than that. So did God die on the cross? No, God did not die on the cross in the sense of ceasing to exist. But God, through Jesus, did go through this experience of death. We're going to look at that in just a minute. And for the Jewish people, they had a hard time believing that a Messiah, that God had been prophesying through all the prophecies, would come and come in weakness. See, they, they pictured someone that would come and really show his stuff. So they, they never saw the suffering Messiah until Jesus came along and showed them all the passages that prophesied that the Messiah would be a suffering Savior as well. So these are tricky things, and again, I, I know that they're mysteries. I don't know how you live with mysteries, but I'm trying to learn how to live with the mysteries. And there's something about this mystery that, like Steve said last week, is like a diamond. The more you look at it, it's just so multifaceted. And I want to talk to you this morning about five ways that the writer to Hebrews talks about this and talks about that if we'll begin to appreciate and understand what Jesus was doing when he became a human being, whew, it can help us when we're tempted to quit or compromise or be afraid. Now, in order just to think about this, this means that if Jesus became a man, if he was God who became man, this is called the incarnation. Some of you know where the idea of incarnation comes from, because every time you order chili, you say, I'd like chili con carne, right? Which means what? What do you want in your chili? Meat, right? Flesh. And so what you're saying is, is I'd like chili with meat. Now, the Bible says is that Jesus was incarnated. He came in human flesh. He came in a body and lived among us. And so some of you are carnivores. You love meat. And some of you know that the idea of carne, carnis. Now, when Jesus was incarnated like that, uh, Pastor Brian Schorberg was telling me that downstairs, this is a tricky thing for kids to grasp. And I was thinking, not just for kids, for all of us, right? Uh, they, their, their thought is, does that mean that Jesus was 50% man and 50% God? Because that's kind of, that kind of would be how our natural minds would think of it. The Bible says, no, he still was God, but he also was fully human. And most of us go, I, I just don't have a category for that. I mean, that sounds like a contradiction. It, it, it's either or, isn't it? And again, it's both and. And that's why when people were hanging out with Jesus on earth, how many times did they go, who is this? I, I have never been around someone like that. I don't know how to figure you out. I have no category for you. And it's because there was no category for Jesus. He is the God-man. And just amazing things. So I want to ask my friends to come out, if they would. And I want you just to think with me about what this would mean. This means that Jesus signed up to go through a process of development like you and I have or are going through right now. So 
Um, just think with me a little bit about this. That means that Jesus, even though he had existed before time, he was God. That, that means that he was willing to become a little guy like this. It was dependent on a mom and dad and who had to learn all kinds of things for the first time. It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus was like this at one point as far as size and development. And then he eventually became a boy like Isaac here. This was Luca, by the way. And uh, Isaac um, is in grade school and uh, he's learning a lot of things about uh, you know, being at that age and all the development that comes with that. And then there's Adam. Adam's a teenager. And some of you, anybody want to go back to being a teenager? Right? I mean, there's some fun things about being a teenager, right? But also some things that, man, everything's new. Our bodies are changing, all kinds of stuff. So anyway, Adam, Adam's not going through that, but Jesus went through that. And then finally, he eventually became a man. And Zach here just reminds us that there's this process that we go through and learning how to be a man or learning how to be an adult. That Jesus went through that process. So uh, would you mind thanking me that our friends would be able to just help us picture this a little bit? I appreciate you guys doing this. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. So now what I want to talk to you about is this. These people are up against it. The writer to Hebrews is saying, man, I've got, I've got to show you that Jesus, by becoming human, is actually the greatest answer God could possibly give you to what you're facing. If you'll, if you'll begin to understand this more and more with God's help, that it will help affect the way you do life as a human being as well. So would you pray with me? And then we'll look at those five things. Now, Lord, it's hitting me more and more the older I get that it's one thing to understand this as information. It's another thing when you explain it to us by revelation, when the light bulb goes on, when we know it in our souls. And I can't, I don't have the power or the ability to do that, not even on my most charming or persuasive day. But you do. And I have seen the results of when you get a hold of us like this. And so we pray that as we give ourselves to learn and understand, that you would show yourself to us so we can know you personally and know the difference that reality makes. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you're uh, turn to uh, Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. We're going to look at this. I'll, I'll make my way through some of these verses. So, verse 5. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. Remember last week, Steve helped us see that in chapter 1, the supremacy of Jesus was shown that he's greater than even the angels. So, angels don't have anything on Jesus. He's greater. So, it wasn't to the angels that God subjected the world to come. No. It's to human beings. But there is a place where someone has testified. This is actually Psalm 8, if you ever want to read it. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you would care for, them, for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus. And I want to just mention throughout the letter of Hebrews, again and again, he's going to call us to see Jesus, to look to Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to know Jesus, because that is what's going to help us do life. And so he says, but we do see Jesus, verse 9, 
who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. If you're following along, by becoming human, Jesus is the king who came down and tasted death for us. By becoming human, Jesus is the king who came down and tasted death for us. I've often thought about what this means that the Bible says is that even before time existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were together in perfect oneness, and Jesus was one of, you know, with, the, with God the Father and God the Son, oversaw creation, oversaw all the universes and all the galaxies and everything being put in place, and as we read earlier, by him all things hold together. Now, he becomes a little guy, and it's just an incredible thing. He was willing to lay aside the robes of his glory for a short time and the prerogatives that come with that in order to take on a human body and be fully human so that he could show us how much he cared about us. Now, most kings don't do that. Most kings say, you come to me. Religion is people reaching up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to us. He is a king who laid aside his robes of glory and the prerogatives that come with his deity and he humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. This is unbelievable. I love, uh, some of you know I have a little saying in my office at home that says, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. He sent his son, the king. I find this hard to wrap my head around, the span of distance that he crossed to come down and live with us. That's what these verses are saying, is that just as we were made a little lower than the angels, you know, when God created us, that Jesus was willing to take that place a little lower than the angels, and that we were given authority, remember, subdue the earth, multiply, and, and, and steward it, rule over it from the beginning. But just like Adam and Eve, we all have turned away from God, or been apathetic about God, or tried to run the show of our own lives, and when that happened, Sin entered the world and so did death. The serpent, the evil one, the devil, began to at least have something over us where he could not just harass us, but he could scare us with the fear of death. And death entered into the world. And when that happened, it says, we do not see everything subject right now, do we? It's all messed up. But Jesus, we do see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God because he did something by coming down. He's the king who came down. And I've tried to get my head around this, so let me just share something I shared in the last couple services that people have said was helpful to them. When I was younger, um, there was a guy named Bill Bright who founded Campus Crusade, a ministry in many universities in this country. And he shared this story I've never forgotten. It was so simple, and yet it helped me. There was a man from India who was a devout member of a Hindu sect and who had a profound sense of reverence for life. He would not kill an ant, a cow, or even a cobra, because to him, due to his belief in reincarnation, he might be killing some past relative. During his visit to America, he had been confronted with the claims of Christ, yet he could not grasp the biblical truth that God actually visited this planet in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He could not comprehend how the great creator God of the universe could become a man, or why. 
One day, as he was walking in the field meditating upon this new truth about Jesus the Christ being God, he was wondering how this could possibly be when he ran across a large anthill with thousands of little ants scurrying around in their busy-like manner. He was standing there observing with wonder the activity of these ants and what amazing creatures they are, when suddenly he heard a tremendous and threatening noise. It was the noise of a large tractor plowing the fields. As he looked up, he discovered that the tractor would soon be plowing through that anthill and thousands of ants would probably be killed and their homes destroyed. Gripped with the same concern that you and I would feel for hundreds of people trapped in a burning building, he became frantic. He wanted to warn them of their impending destruction. He thought to himself, how can I warn them? If I could write in the sand, they wouldn't be able to read it. If I shouted to them, they wouldn't understand me. The only possible way I could communicate with them would be by becoming, what, friends? An ant. If I had that ability, he thought. And then suddenly, he had a revelation from the Spirit of God. He saw why God, the creator of the universe, chose to become one of us by becoming a man in the person of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. And through his experience with the anthill, the light suddenly came on in the heart of that Hindu man. And he now understood the words of the Apostle Paul, who though Jesus, though he was God, did not demand and cling to his rights as God, but he was willing to make himself nothing. And he took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form, Philippians 2, 6 and 7. What an incredible, incredible step down. Now, it's one thing for you and me to become ants. That would be quite, quite a step. But that's nothing, nothing. We can't even imagine what it was like for Jesus to leave the heights of glory and step down into our world and become humble like that. And the Bible says is that you and I can take on the same attitude that Jesus took on of that kind of humility, that we can do that because we see our king who came down and tasted death for us. And I want you to be careful about understanding Jesus did not come down just to be an example. Jesus did not come down just to inspire. Jesus did not come down just to teach. He did all those things. He came down to taste death for us. He became our substitute. The Bible says is that none of us are righteous enough. None of us could possibly offer to God a righteous enough sacrifice on our own merits. Therefore, the Bible says is that Jesus was willing to die and taste death in our place that we might be able to taste something better, taste something different, life. Praise his name. The second reason why becoming human is so important is that Jesus, according to the next verse, is the pioneer of our salvation by all that he suffered for us. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation by all that he suffered for us. Listen to verse 10. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting, it was just right of God's character that for whom and through whom everything exists, that he should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. In other words, fully qualified. Fully, fully qualified. He did that through what Jesus suffered. But he was the pioneer of our salvation. You ever heard about pioneers? What do they do? 
They go where people haven't been before, in most cases, right? They actually blaze the trail by going first, by going ahead. They make a way open so that the people that follow them don't get lost and don't have to go through quite the exact same you know, thing. They, they have help. And uh, many of us have maybe taken a trail or a hike, and we found that somebody went before us and they put this sign, be careful a little further ahead because you may, you know, there's a drop-off or there may be these kind of dangers. And by those warnings, that kind of pioneer effort makes a huge difference. The Bible says is that Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. He actually went first. Some of you have told me that means a lot to you, that when you were considering whether or not to be baptized and all that went with that, every time you thought about Jesus at 30 years old, stepping down into the water, and although he was righteous and without sin, said to John the Baptist, baptize me. I'll go first. I'm going to ask every person that believes in me to follow me in this same way. Baptize me. I want to ask you a question. How responsive are you to people that tell you what to do compared to people that show you what to do? It's all the difference in the world. Theologians for years have said, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus came to show us what life looks like with God when a human being has the same attitude that he had towards God and towards people, and when he did that, he became the pioneer of our salvation. He did not get exempted from suffering. He did not get a silver spoon. He did not, get, he did not bypass the stuff that you and I have had to go through because sin and death entered the world. He drank it. He tasted it. And that is an amazing thing that he was willing to go first. If you look here at the screen, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, these verses, you want to talk about mysteries, these blow me away. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. In the same way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And Jesus blazed the trail. He showed a way, said, follow me. I'll show you how to do this. I will make a way through. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. I've done it too. You can follow me. And I told you, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but in high school, when I was first coming to know Jesus Christ, some of my mentors and youth leaders said, Jeff, here are some verses that you need to meditate on and even put to memory so that when you face difficult things, these will come back to you to help you. One of those verses was this one here on the screen, Hebrews 12. This is an amazing, amazing passage that talks more about how Jesus pioneered and this is the message paraphrase. It says, keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility that he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. And here's what it says. Therefore, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, and it says the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Oh, my goodness. And how many people have been strengthened over the years 
when they were up against it and they remembered that Jesus, when he was up against it, he pushed through it in God's power. And you and I can too. Years ago, I remember there was a lady in our church that was up in years away and she had to go to China. She felt like God was calling her to deliver Bibles. And so at that time, again, there was not a lot of openness to this. And that was when she got to, and it may have been Russia, but there was, the country was closed. I remember that. And so she had this heavy, heavy coat that inside was lined with all kinds of pockets to carry Bibles because these people didn't have Bibles. And she had agreed to carry those in at the risk of being arrested. And as she was going up, evidently in this country, there was a huge place in this city of steps and stairs. And she was already exhausted. And she said, man, Lord, I don't know if I can do this. And at that moment, the picture of Jesus carrying the cross flashed through her mind. And she had new energy to go up those stairs because he had already blazed the trail. Praise his name. Third thing that the writer of Hebrews shows us here is that by becoming human, Jesus is the brother who makes us holy and is proud of us. Jesus is the brother who makes us holy and is proud of us. If you look at verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that means set apart for God and his purposes, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. I don't know, again, we in the United States tend to emphasize individualism more than being part of a family. But I know that many of you also appreciate your family. But to have Jesus be willing to include us in his family, to be willing to say, you're my brother, you're my sister, and I'm not ashamed of you. Some of you know that in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus includes a whole bunch of people that didn't get it right the first time. A whole bunch of people that messed it up a number of times. And what does that tell us about Jesus' genealogy? That God, in his grace, still wants to work through broken people who will humble themselves before him and let him show them a better way. Jesus was not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. And when you and I put our trust in him and what he's done, because he was not ashamed of us and we're not ashamed of him, he's, he's proud of us. I wonder if that blesses you today to know that Jesus is not ashamed of you. I, when I know about myself, he has every right to be ashamed of me. He has every right to say, man, that's a tough one to have in the family. But he has this incredible desire to include us. Some of you have invested a lot of money to adopt a child into your family. Jesus gave everything, his blood, to adopt us into his family, and he's proud of us. It's an amazing thing. The fourth thing is that by becoming human, Jesus is the perfect human who by his death can free us from the fear of death. Jesus became the representative or the perfect human who by his death can free us from fear, from the fear of death. How did he do that? Would you read verse 14 with me there in the message notes in the gray box? Because God's... I, I probably started a little early. Let me try it again. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And it goes on in verse 15 and says this, And free those 
who all their lives were held in slavery, that were enslaved by their fear of death. One of the things I've learned as a pastor is that people don't like to talk about death. Our culture has gone the other way. We're, we're absolutely intrigued with this twisted of demonstrations of death. But it's almost like a way of kind of putting the focus away from ourselves and thinking about what death might mean for us. And some of you have had to deal with death. 7.15 this morning, my cousin called me and told me my uncle died this morning. So I know I'm going to be standing at a funeral in the next couple days with them. And I'll tell you what. Death is scary. In many ways, death is dark. Death is foreboding for many of us, isn't it? And part of it is that we learn in the Bible that death came into the world because of our sin, Adam and Eve's and ours too. And so until the last enemy to be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we have to learn how to live with the reality of death. And what it does to a lot of people is it makes them throw their lives away in all kinds of stuff and say, man, I'm, if I'm going to die tomorrow, then I want to like whoop it up and throw my life into all kinds of stuff. Or some people, they are so scared they can't even function sometimes. They wake up with this dread hanging them over all the time. And the Bible says is that what happened when Jesus came down to earth is that he came down not just to be an example and a great teacher, he came down to go right into the power center of the devil and rip out his ability to hold that over us. Friends, I want to tell you something. How did death, that lady asked me after the last service, how did that happen? When the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, he was trying to get them to use the authority that God had given them to have dominion over the earth in a different way. He tried to get them to take a shortcut, just like he tried to tempt Jesus to take a shortcut and not go to the cross. But when they gave in to eating that fruit instead of trusting God, what happened is, is that now the serpent had authority over them had this ability to harass them, had this ability to try and put these kinds of thoughts on them all the time. But when Jesus came, he said, no, 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 no. These people may die because of their sins, but if they'll look to me, because I will take their sins upon my shoulder and pay the whole price, the whole price for their sins, so it is paid in full now. The evil one has nothing he can accuse you of anymore if you've trusted in Christ. And you don't have to dread your future. You have a hope in Christ. This is an amazing thing, friends. It doesn't mean that we still don't get nervous about being sick or going through hardship, but what it means is ultimately we can die with a smile on our face because we know where we're going. We know that Jesus didn't just blaze a trail to live here on earth, but he blazed a trail into all of eternity where we're going to be with him. That's an amazing thing. And the last thing that I hope you see in this passage is that by becoming human, Jesus is the high priest who's able to help us when we're tested. Jesus is the high priest who's able to help us when we're tested. Some of you grew up with priests. Some of you grew up with pastors. What's a high priest? A high priest was considered the person that stood between God and people. He was supposed to help them come near to God, and he was also to help what God wanted to say to the people get delivered to them. So he stood between. Problem is, the high priest here on earth was always flawed himself. He too needed atonement to be made for his sin. He needed God's, the penalty of his sin to be paid for by someone else. And so he couldn't necessarily help them overcome sin. He could just help them be forgiven from sin. So God said, I want to do something better. I want to send a high priest who not only 
will be able to conquer the power of sin in the people's lives, but also he'll still be merciful. He'll still be understanding and not condescending or look down on people. And by having Jesus go through what he did, Jesus understands. What's that old hymn say? No one understands like Jesus. Wow. This is incredible. Look at Hebrews 4.15, if you would, here on the screen. We have it there. Hebrews 4.15. Don't have it. My bad. Here's what it says. We do not have... In fact, you know why I know I didn't give it to you? Uh, it's because I want you just to turn the page of your Bible. It's not that far away. So, sorry. Here's what it says. 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Wow. Would you read verse 18 with me in the gray box there? Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. You know, in my notes, I would recommend those first three words of the second line. He is able. I don't know if you believe that. But Jesus is able to help you with whatever you face and do it better because he's helping you. He's able. When I was a little kid, my Sunday school teachers taught me a song that just flashed back to me this week. He's able. He's able. I know he's able. I know my Lord is able to carry me through. And the whole idea of knowing that now he is able to help me in a way that no one else is able to help me. Do you understand this? I can be understanding with you, but I won't understand you. I can make every effort to try and imagine what you're going through and try and be understanding, but Jesus understands. He's, he's the only person that can say, I know exactly how you feel, and you not want to scream. Because <laughs> he does. He knows. What does that say? So he is able to help us when we're tempted, some of you, your versions say tempted. The word tempted also means tested. You know, don't you, that when you and I are being tempted, it is a test of our character. It's a test of what's really important to us. That's going to show up when we're tempted. Whatever thing we really, really love is what we're going to follow when we're tempted. And so Jesus, when those things were placed before him, he stood the test. He was able to, but he knew what it was like to be tempted in a way that you and I don't because it went even further for him. Think about this. Because most of us give in to temptation more quickly than he did, we don't experience the full weight of it. It's like a bridge. A bridge that collapses after a car or two have gone over it doesn't experience the same thing as a bridge that has hundreds and thousands of cars go over it. And Jesus experienced the weight of temptation in a way that you and I can never imagine. And yet he also has experienced it the way you and I have. He can help us. So what does this mean? How do we, like, how, what do we, what does this mean for us? Well, here's what I'd like to suggest. Just like the Hebrew Christians that were being written to in the first century, when we face suffering and testing, there's a couple things we can do. And here they are. We can take heart if you're following along because Jesus understands. We can take heart or take courage. We can actually, you know, stand up strong because Jesus understands. 
Look at what he says in John 16, 33, if you would. John 16, 33, tell him hello. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. This is what he said the night before he's going to the cross. He says, look, I never promised you that your life was going to be easy. Don't ever put that on me. And neither did God promise me that I wouldn't go through that either. But here's what I know. You can take heart because I have overcome it. Everything I faced, I was able to find a way to obey God, and I can help you do the same thing. When you feel like you can't trust God, I can help you. Take heart. I am with you. I now want to live in you. I want to be Christ incarnated in you. I want to be Jesus in you, and I can show you how to do this. Man, it's powerful to know he understands. And some of you, you know there's nobody in this room that understands what you're going through. I know I don't. There are things that I sometimes I stand along and walk alongside some of you and I go, oh my goodness, is that a hard one? There are things that I know how insensitive I still am because I don't fully understand, but Jesus does. And the second thing is this, is that we don't have to shrink back or give in. We can overcome. We don't have to shrink back or give in. We can overcome. Can I say something to some of you today? You feel like that because you have these feelings or these temptations that you have to do it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to act on temptation. Temptation is not sin. It's temptation. It becomes sin when you continue to nurse it and act on it. But temptation itself, Jesus went through temptation. He never sinned with it. And here's the thing. It would help me. Years ago, I went to a counselor. And I was talking to him about some stuff, and he said this line I've never forgotten. Jeff, just because you're having these thoughts doesn't mean you have to act on them. He set me free by telling me that. Jesus is saying, look, you don't have to shrink back. You don't have to quit. I know it may be strong, but you are, you're going to regret that in the long run if you do. I want to help you. Friends, let me ask you something. The Bible says in verse 17 that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. When you're tempted... What kind of friends do you turn to? What kind of counsel do you seek? Do you turn to people that will be merciful with you, but they're living an unfaithful life so you can actually feel better about yourself? Or do you turn to people that can be merciful with you, but also they're seeking to be faithful, and they'll give you counsel that says, come on, you can do this with Jesus. What kind of friends are you looking for? The Bible says is Jesus wants to be one of those friends in your life. He wants you to turn to him and trust him because he can help you. And when you and I do that, oh my goodness, we can overcome whatever we're facing. I know that may sound impossible. It may sound like I don't have a brain in my head. But I know this, the Bible says is that he can help us overcome it. And many of us, by his grace, are seeing God help us move into areas we were never able to move into because we've lived such defeated and fearful lives. So how does all this play out? You know, I remember a couple things. One, I remember when I was first married, I remember that I, uh, Trish and I had our first meal uh, those first few weeks, you know, with our new dishes and stuff. And so we'd uh, have dinner. My mom always taught me that after dinner was over, you know, to take my dishes to the sink. So I did that. I remember I was standing at the sink and I thought, huh, I wonder what I'm going to do now. I think maybe I'll go watch TV. <laughs> now, some of you say, how does God talk to you, Jeff? I've told you many times it's impressions across my thought process. It's not an audible voice. And you say, well, how do you know that's God and not some bad pizza? Here's how I know. <laughs> when that happens, 
is it's a different thought than I would think. And it's always calling me to do something that God would say. So here's how it goes. Jeff, why don't you pick up the towel? And I thought, huh. <laughs> Maybe if I'm going to be a husband that helps dry the dishes, rather than just think my wife's got the whole thing to do, that might be a better way to live. And I knew that Jesus had once taken up the towel, that he came down in human flesh, and although he was a king, when he got down the night before in front of his disciples and said, I know none of you guys want to wash each other's feet. You all think you're better than that. I'll wash your feet. And when I wash your feet, I'm going to leave you an example that you can follow because you'll be blessed when you have the same attitude I have towards people and towards God. And that changed me. That night, Trish and I, we had this neat conversation. I would have missed all that. See, but Jesus came so that he could show me how life could look like when he lived in my flesh. And the other thing that happened is that Corey Tenboom, some of you have read The Hiding Place, and you know that she and her sister and family were all arrested because they hid Jews in the World War II during the German occupation of Holland. And so a neighbor betrayed them, and they all went to these concentration camps, and Corey was the only one that survived, and that was because of a clerical error. And in these concentration camps, horrible things happened. Things that eventually made her say, we learned that no pit is too deep, that God's love is not deeper still, but it was a hard lesson to learn. And one of the hardest lessons was that on Fridays at one of the concentration camps, the women were made to take off all their clothes and walk in front of a whole line of guards as they did all kinds of humiliating things and words to them. And she dreaded it. They had to keep their hands down their sides every Friday, every week, for quite a while. One of the days that she was doing that, across the ticker of her mind came this thought. She'd never thought it before. He hung naked on the cross. This thought so infused her with a sense of fellowship and with a sense of someone that understood that she whispered to her sister Betsy right in front of her and said, they took his clothes too. And Betsy, as she thought about that, said these incredible words, oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. You know what you and I can do today? We can thank Jesus that though he was a king, he came down and tasted death for us. That he became the pioneer of our salvation. Showing us the way through his suffering. We can actually have a brother who is not ashamed of us, even though we deserve to have people be ashamed of us. We can have a high priest who is merciful and faithful and will help us obey God. He is able. We need to know that today, don't we? So we can thank him. Here's the closing question. Will I turn to him in trust? If Jesus is supreme, will I turn to him in trust when I'm tested or afraid? I can't answer that for you. I don't know what you're up against. I don't know what temptation you're tempted to give into again and again. I don't know what kind of suffering you're wondering if he cares. I don't know what you may be going through. Here's my question. Will you trust him? Will you let him be? in your life, Christ in you? Will you let him be the one that can help you live life in the flesh a totally different way? One last thought. You know what we're doing right now here as a church? 
You know who Jesus' body is now in the world? It's made up of a gathering of all those who trust in Christ. We are his body. He wants to incarnate us and he wants to show us how to live in this world differently and point people to the good news of what Jesus has done for them so that Christ can live in them too. So let's praise him. Let's worship him in this closing song, Jesus, Messiah. I want to just mention again, we told you a few weeks ago that the elders, spiritual leaders of our church, have sensed that we need to fast and pray, worship and pray in this season leading up to Easter every Wednesday just to set us apart and say, God, are we going the direction you want us to go? Is there something you want to say to us? How do we draw near to you as a church no matter how things change? So we're doing that but also the elders have been available the last couple Wednesdays and will be every Wednesday till Easter here in the offices at this end of the building. So from 6 to 7 on Wednesday nights, if for any reason you would like prayer, additional prayer to the prayers you're already praying, or you find yourself too weak to pray right now and you need someone to pray for you, we would be honored to do that. You know, James 5 says, when you're up against it, whether it be healing, whether it be physical, emotional, relational healing. You've got a difficult decision to make. There's times to ask other believers to pray for you and pray with you. So we want to do that. And that's why every Sunday down here at the front, whether you ever take advantage of it or not, please know there's always people that would be honored to pray with you. Honored to try and walk through something with you in a little bit. Walk alongside you in prayer. So I want to pray for you as we walk out in this world that we can actually learn what it means to follow Jesus in the flesh to let him live in our bodies, to let him live in our lives and have the supremacy. Now, God, you know that even in the last 24 hours, instead of trusting you, I trusted myself in some ways, and I just want to pray you'll help me continue to learn this life. I'm so thankful you're willing to call me brother. But I pray for any person in this room that may need to trust you for the first time, that you'll help them do that. I want to pray for those that have trusted you in the past but have fallen away from you. I pray that they'll see how they could live differently because of the trail you've blazed for them. And I want to pray for those that are especially weighed down by suffering or testing right now. Oh God, be merciful and faithful to them. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.